0: if you would, grab your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah, chapter 31. It is not too far away from Ecclesiastes, about in the middle of your Bible, Jeremiah chapter 31. And let me begin by reading aloud a good chunk. I'm going to start in Jeremiah 31, 23, "'Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own sin. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be My people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know Me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. All right, we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, But first, this have you noticed that Christmas decorations have gone up earlier this year, even before Thanksgiving? It's true. And one perpetrator from Missouri purchased blow-up snowmen and an eight-foot Santa and 20 pink flamingos with red caps. Now, when asked why he would do such a thing, he answered, what else can we do? People really can't help but smile and laugh when they see pink flamingos. Now, let me go out on a limb and say this is not what Charles Wesley had in mind when he penned the words to a hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem without a flamingo in sight. <laughs> now Christmas is around the corner and many, many view this simply as a time for shopping, albeit online, feasting, albeit in very small groups, and apparently pink flamingos. And it is more necessary than ever to know that what we are celebrating when we celebrate Christmas, the commemoration of the birth of our Savior. This season, as is every season, is a time for worship. Now, for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be preaching from two famous Old Testament passages, and the content and context of these passages is crucial to our understanding of Christmas and, in particular, to why Christ was born. All right, word of warning. This will not be the easiest sermon to listen to. It perhaps is going to be a little bit more teachy than preachy. Um, It is what it is. Uh, It may be hard at times to pay attention to this message, but this work that we're about to do together is important if we are going to deeply. understand certainly the incarnation, understand Christmas, understand why Christmas came. But even if you will suck the joy out of the season, right, it's not found in blow-up snowmen. It is found in the rich, deep theological doctrines undergirding the coming of Christ. Charles Wesley wrote, God and sinners reconciled. That is why Jesus came, and it's what we need. We need God to make us right with him. That's what we need more than anything else. And if God has, in fact, already made you right with him, well, then what you need more than anything else is to appreciate that truth so deeply that everything else in your life, the importance of everything else in your life, pales in comparison to that little sentence God and sinners reconciled. We need God. We need God to make us right with Him. We need God to help us to appreciate that this truth is the most important truth to be proclaimed and to be enjoyed on all the earth. So, in order to lead our hearts to sing with joy, in order to appreciate this glorious reality, we need to roll up our sleeves, get to work, and, and figure out how Jeremiah fits into the overall story of the Bible. So that's where I want to begin. I want to remind you, as I was just reminded in Sunday school this morning, that the Bible is, in fact, one book with ultimately God as its author. It is a unified whole. It presents one story with Christ being really the, the story. All of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, exists to showcase Christ as the Lord of history, and as the Savior of the nations. That's what the Bible is about. And the Bible begins in Genesis with this beautiful account of creation, of, of God making everything good, including people. God originally made Adam and Eve good without sin. That did not last long. And if you're going to blame Adam and Eve, I guarantee if you were there, it would have lasted, the sin would have come into the world even faster. Right? They were the best humanity had to offer. And they gave in to sin. It entered the world. And so now we found ourselves at odds with God. And in fact, we found ourselves separated from God. And in a sense, exiled, kicked out of the garden where God dwelt with His people. Now, That is the problem established in Genesis 3. The reality that God's creation, created good, is now severed or separated from Him, out of communion with Him, out of fellowship with Him. And God most fundamentally first addresses that problem by promising to restore the world into fellowship with Him through Abraham and Abraham's descendants. He tells Abraham in Genesis 12 that Abraham is going to become a father of a great nation, and that nation is going to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And so, we get a sense of restoration. There's going to be reconciliation between God and between humanity. Now, we begin to see the initial fulfillment of this promise of restoration when God saves Abraham's descendants from Egypt. God is afoot doing a great work, calling… Now, Abraham's descendants by that time are referred to as Israel, so God calls Israel to Himself. He takes them out of Egypt. He is in the process of restoring His people to full communion, to full fellowship with Him. Now, if you want to understand something of God's relationship with His people at this time, you need to know something about the Old Covenant. You've already heard about the Old Covenant twice in Hebrews 8 and in Jeremiah 31. After bringing Israel out of Egypt, God committed to them. And He committed it in this way. He said, I'm going to prosper you if you obey me. I'm going to punish you if you disobey me. And I'm going to forgive you if you turn to me after you've sinned." That is the old covenant. And the people entered into this covenant. They said quite famously in Exodus 24, "'Yes, God, we hear. Everything you say, we will do.'" So they were glad adherents, glad makers of this, of this covenant with God. Now, sadly, and as you might imagine, immediately the people of Israel proved themselves to be covenant breakers. And so, God, who, as we just sang, is always faithful, God faithfully punished them. You can read about this on virtually every page of the Old Testament. They turned away from God. They turned to false gods. There were, there were few exceptions of individuals in Israel. Most everyone was unfaithful to God. And two events of God's judgment stand out in the Old Testament. Now, the first event took place in 722 BC, and that's when most of Israel was conquered by the kingdom of Assyria. Now, any other people reading about this would just think, well, this is another bit of history, right? Like Napoleon in Russia. But the difference between that and this is that Assyria conquering Israel is, in fact, God's judgment against Israel. And we know that because God predicted it, God promised it, and God did it. That was 722 BC when Most of the Israelites were conquered, defeated, and even exiled under the kingdom of Assyria. Well, a number of years later, we have the second event of God's judgment, of God being faithful to His old covenant. God sent Babylon to defeat the rest of Israel, really the jewel of the Israelite kingdom, Jerusalem. God sends Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to destroy Jerusalem, to destroy the temple, and to exile the people. Now, this is where we meet Jeremiah, the prophet. Jeremiah is the prophet that God sent to warn the citizens of Jerusalem that Babylon is on its way. Jeremiah lived during the siege of Jerusalem by Babylon. He lived during the burning of Jerusalem by Babylon. Babylon. He lived during the exile of the citizens of Jerusalem and Judah by Babylon. Now, I want to give you, and so that's what Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, is about. I want to give you a taste of this book. Uh, I guess if we wanted to sit down together and read it aloud and maybe talk about it just a little bit, that would be about three hours. Let's go ahead and not do that. Let me give you a little bit of taste. So there's going to be a lot of flipping today. Jeremiah chapter 1. Verse 18, this is where God calls Jeremiah to stand up to, uh, to uh, well, to Israel, right? Verse 18, this is God speaking, And I, behold, I make you, Jeremiah, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land, right? Everyone in Israel was complicit with covenant breaking. The kings on the throne, right? The priests in the temple, the farmers in the land. And God sends Jeremiah to stand up to all of them and to tell all of them that they've gone astray, that they've become covenant breakers. Now, you might think, well, what did these people do that was really so bad that deserves all of this? Look at chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, right? That's evil number one. And hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So two evils. One evil, they forgot God. They forsook God. They abandoned God. And if that wasn't bad enough, they built other gods for themselves to worship, false gods. So you've got a contrast between the fountain of living waters, right? That's a beautiful picture. And like a broken cistern right? A bowl of water that doesn't actually hold any water. How worthless is that? And so those are the two evils that Israel committed, forgetting God and turning to idols. Now, someone might object at this point and say, but wait a second, God, you're a forgiving God. That's your job. You, just, you forgive people. You're the God of second chances. Why does why this judgment have to come? Why, why don't you just pardon them now? And God answers that question in Jeremiah chapter 5, In verse 7, he says, how can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? You know, in the Old Testament, God uh, calls himself the husband of his people, which makes sense of those verses. Israel, the bride, has been unfaithful. Now, we might still object and say, God, wait a second. I get that the sin is really, really bad, but uh, aren't you supposed to be loving and gracious and forgiving? I mean, these are your people. Certainly, they can do better next time. Well, God answers this objection by helping us to understand what the modern mind doesn't really understand, which is just how wicked sin actually is. We don't quite get it, right? We are typically pretty convinced that sin is just something we do. I had a bad, it's like having a bad day. You're not a bad person. You just had a bad day. The Bible doesn't treat sin like that, The Bible pretty much treats sin as who you are. It's your identity. Uh, Fundamentally, a a sinner. Look at Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23. Jeremiah 13, verse 23. The question is, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Now, you understand the the point there, right? You can't do good. (laughs) You, you can't do good, he says, any more than the Ethiopian can change his skin or the leopard can change his spots. Like That saying right there from Jeremiah 13, 23 has become famous. Like We all know that. This is what you say when you're trying to communicate that someone can't change. It's, it's impossible to change. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah, that's the region of Israel in which Jerusalem sat. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. Sin, he says, is engraved on the tablet of the human heart. Anybody can understand this. This, that, That image is so perfect that anyone can understand that that God's people had engraved sin on their hearts in such a way that, like, no eraser is going to take the, the name of sin out of the, out of the heart. It, it can't be done. It's, it's, it's been engraved with the hardest substance on earth, a diamond, right? You, you see the point. It is, it's indelible. It's unchangeable. Sin is now who we are. And, and remember, in all of this, in the Old Testament, we're talking about covenant breaking. That's what... Any reader in Jeremiah would want you to understand he is describing covenant breakers. And just so this is super clear to you, go back to Jeremiah chapter, or go to Jeremiah chapter 11, where this point is made explicitly. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 3, this is what Jeremiah is to say, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord the God of Israel, cursed. Now, cursed, that's, that's like bad. It's punishment. Bad stuff is going to happen. Not blessing, but cursing. Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant. And remember, by hear, it's like when dad says to Junior, son, you didn't hear me. He doesn't mean Junior had like you know, uh, earbuds in his ears. He means Junior didn't obey. He didn't hear me, right? Cursed be the man who who does not hear the words of this covenant, right? I'm going to punish the one who does not heed, heed the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, that's Egypt, right? Saying, listen to my voice and do all that I command you." That's the covenant. Listen, do. And Israel, Judah, the citizens of Jerusalem proved themselves to be covenant breakers. And Jeremiah wants them to understand that this problem is so deep, it's so intractable, it's so unchangeable, that they cannot help themselves. That's what all these images of the Ethiopian and the leopard spots and the the diamond pen, all of that is getting to the point that you've broken the covenant and your wickedness is so intense and it's so deep and it's so personal that it is part of you and that you cannot change yourself. You cannot save yourself. And that's why if I could just fast forward about 600 years, it's why Jesus came. Jesus came because there was a problem so monumental that humanity couldn't fix it. And at the Last Supper, Jesus held up a glass of wine, and He said in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And with those words, with those words, what Jesus did was He drew the minds of everyone listening to Him to Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos, and all the prophets who again and again accused the people of covenant-breaking. And the disciples sitting around Jesus would have been well aware of that history, but they would not have been as aware of the reality that Jesus, in His coming, and in His perfection, and ultimately in His death and resurrection, was ushering in the new covenant. Now, what is this new covenant? What is it? And that's what we have in Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 through 34. Remember, the old covenant says, I'm I'm going to prosper those who obey me. I'm going to punish those who disobey me, and I'm going to forgive those who humbly turn to me. And they got an F. They got an F. The New Covenant is different. The New Covenant is better. The New Covenant says, I'm going to prosper those who disobeyed me. I'm going to punish the one who obeyed me. And I'm going to make it possible for everyone who turns to me to be forgiven. That's the new covenant. I want to explain to you what's new about this new covenant. I want everyone within earshot of my voice to enter the Christmas season, ready to dropkick pink flamingos across the yard and to understand deep in your soul what is so awesome about God taking on flesh. And I'm going to do that by sharing with you what makes the new covenant new. A lot could be said, but on the basis of Jeremiah 31 through 34, I think five things must be said. And I'm going to share those five things with you starting now. Right? Number one, the new covenant is unbreakable. The new covenant is unbreakable. Look at Jeremiah 31 31 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Jeremiah reminds them of the old covenant. That's the one I've been talking about. Notice he says it's the covenant that they broke. They broke it by forgetting God. They broke it by forsaking God. They broke it by turning from the fountain of living waters and turning to cistern, broken cisterns. They broke it by failing to hear God's Word, by refusing to repent, by proudly ignoring the temple right? They broke it. They were covenant breakers. They cheated on God, which led to their separation from God and ultimately their punishment and exile. But the new covenant, Jeremiah says here, is not like the old covenant. When Christ becomes your Lord, when your relationship to God the Father is secured through the ministry of God the Son, that relationship, that covenant cannot be broken. And this is why... In Romans chapter 8, we find this very well-known and incredible passage describing the unbreakability of God's relationship with His covenant people. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 38. For I am sure, Paul writes, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the unbreakability of the new covenant. Now, we don't have a perfect example of such an unbreakable union here on earth. There is no perfect example of the strength and permanence of the covenant being described right there. But I think a pretty good example is that of the marriage between Dr. Robert McQuilkin, the former president of Columbia International University, and his wife, Muriel. Robert McQuilkin was, as I said, the president of that university. And at the time when he was at the the height of his vocation, His dear wife, Muriel, came down with Alzheimer's. And McQuilkin said that uh, whenever he was away, Muriel was just a basket case. She was agitated, she was angry, she was upset. And whenever he was near her, well, she became placid and calm and, and restful. And McQuilkin, Robert McQuilkin, realized what he needed to do. And so he stepped down from his position as the president of the university, and he devoted the remaining years of Muriel's life to serving her. Now when asked why he did such a thing, he said, when I'm with her, she's happy and contented, and so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health till death do us part, and I'm a man of my word, it's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her dearly. From Dr. Mukulkin's perspective, not even Alzheimer's could break the covenant that they had made, even though that Muriel, by that stage in her life, had nothing to give to him. Even though in a physical sense, there were no vows that she could purposefully keep, but that did not keep him from declaring, this bond is unbreakable. If you are in God's new covenant, there is nothing on Earth or on Mars that can separate you from the love of God. That is the very definition of the new covenant. It is unbreakable. If God is your father through the ministry of Jesus Christ, then God is going to pursue you forever and nothing can stop that because that is the very nature, the very identity of the new covenant. It is by definition unbreakable. Second, the New Covenant is powerful. The New Covenant is powerful. Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Now, there is another New Covenant passage which sheds even greater light on Jeremiah's word. So don't lose Jeremiah but you can turn right and find Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, and you get an even fuller sense, I think, of what the Holy Spirit was leading Jeremiah to write there. Ezekiel 36, 26, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Now, remember Jeremiah 17, where you have this description of the people of Israel as having a pen of iron with a diamond point engraving sin into the tablet of the human heart. Any mature reader is going to understand the idea. Nothing can get rid of that sin. That's the whole idea of Jeremiah 17.1. There's nothing that can be done to get rid of that sin. To reverse the effect of it, nothing except God and the new covenant. He can erase the hard drive and install new software, or to use imagery from the Bible, He can take out your heart of stone, engraved with sin, and give you a heart of flesh. He can put his law, which you've been breaking and breaking and breaking, he can say, okay, I'm going to write it right into your heart. Now, when you hear, as you heard a few moments ago, that the new covenant is unbreakable, some of you might be tempted to think, now, wait a second, does this mean that I can then go out and sort of like sow my wild oats and live however I want to live because on November 29, 2020, I heard from a credible pastor that the new covenant is unbreakable. I'm in the new covenant. Woohoo! I can do whatever I want. Now, I recognize that I could go to Romans and answer that question, may it never be. And I recognize that being the sinful people that we are we are tempted to think that the unbreakability of the New Covenant is, in some sense, a license to sin. But the way that I need to answer that objection right now is not from Romans, but it's from Jeremiah. And it's from this incredible reality that if you are now in the New Covenant, you have a power that was practically incomprehensible to anyone who ever lived before the New Covenant. It is so powerful that now in Christ, the Bible says you have the desire to obey the Lord. Your desires have changed. Your affections have changed. Though, yes, in a fallen world, you still desire to sin. If you're a Christian, you desire holiness more. That's the promise of the power of the new covenant. Listen to Romans 6, 17. I know I just said I wasn't good at Romans. Take that back. Paul writes, But thanks be to God... That you who were once slaves have become obedient from the heart. You've become obedient from the heart. right? That's like that Dr. McQuilkin. It's not because I have to, it's because I get to. you become obedient from the heart. You're obeying because you want to obey. Do you have to obey? Well, Yes. But that's not the whole story. You get to obey. Obedient from the heart. Listen to 1 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I recognize that I have quoted that passage a thousand and one times to make the point, hey, Christians, don't forget, you're going to be persecuted. But now I want to use that verse to say, hey, Christians, don't forget, you desire to live a godly life. How amazing is that? If you didn't get that, it's 1 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire, all those in the New Covenant desire to live a godly life. That is the power of the new covenant, you now have the desire to obey. And I could go to so many other new covenant passages to show you that. But I also want you to see that in the new covenant, because of its power, you now have the ability to obey. You can obey. You have the power to obey. One of the most famous passages that showcase this truth is Philippians chapter two, Philippians chapter two, verse 12. We read, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, now so, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, right? Obey, be holy, work it out, get to work, suck it up, work it out. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's new covenant language. I will write my law on their heart. I will cause them to walk in my statutes. 1 Thessalonians 1.11 says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Paul says, here's our prayer for you. We're constantly praying for you that you would obey by his power. You can't obey by your own power. You can't obey by your own strength. But we're not under the old covenant. We're in the new covenant. You have the Holy Spirit, which means you have the power to obey God. The law is now written on your heart, which means you have a new heart, which means you can walk in all the statues that God commands you. God is not, not like the Pharaoh who says, make more brick. It doesn't give you enough straw. And he's not like a father who says, get good grades, but never sits down and walks you through algebra or helps you understand English lit. No, God is a tender God, a merciful God, a kind God, and he gives us the power to obey. So when God calls you to himself, he empowers you to obey him. That's the, the New Covenant promise. So praise God for this. Just to be super clear, Christians are not the people of the power of positive thinking. If We just all get in the same room together and sing Christian songs together. We're just going to get this great feeling and we're going to go out and change the world. We're not a people of the power of positive thinking. We are a people of the power of God who recognize fully and deeply that under the New Covenant, the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon us in such a dramatic way that we not only desire to obey the lord but we can obey the lord and that's not a pep talk that is new covenant truth the new covenant is powerful it's why we pray it's why we pray because it's powerful right number three the new covenant is personal it's personal Look at the end of Jeremiah 31, uh, 33. I'll start at the top of 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. The new covenant is the promise that God will be yours and that you will be his. Not, Not the way that the falcons are mine. Like the Falcons are my team, no, not that way, and not even the way you might say, you know, Kemp is, is my governor, not even not even that way. No, it's more like, Dina is my wife, and I am her husband. It's familial language. It's personal and intimate language. Now, I want to show you something interesting. Look at Jeremiah thirty-one twenty-three. Jeremiah thirty-one twenty-three. Now. Jeremiah had prophesied the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And Jerusalem was identified as the holy hill, right? This Jerusalem being a, uh, being a hill. Uh, and the temple, of course, being at the top of the hill. So when you, when you hear holy habitation and you're a Jewish reader, what you're thinking about is, well, this is, of course, this is, is David's city. This is God's city. This is the place where God dwells. The holy habitation, the holy hill. And so that's why in verse 23, with this promise of future blessings, uh, Jeremiah exclaims, The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. In other words, though you're about to be pulverized, there will come a day when you're restored. All right, And of course, again, the holy habitation, the holy hill, or the habitation of righteousness, the holy hill uh, is Jerusalem. It's, it's the temple. But I want you to notice something. Uh, if you go right in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 50, well, by the time Jeremiah chapter 50 uh, is written, the, uh, the judgment against Jerusalem has, has come. Uh, the temple has been burned. The city has been demolished. Uh, the... And in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 7, it says, Well, they're explaining, Jeremiah is explaining uh, why Israel fell. And in verse 7 it says, For they have sinned against the Lord, their habitation of righteousness. The Lord, the hope of their fathers. You notice something interesting comparing these two verses. In Jeremiah 31, 23, the habitation of righteousness is clearly Jerusalem. It's the city pulverized by Nebuchadnezzar. In Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 7, after the pulverizing has taken place, the same phrase, habitation of righteousness, is used. But this time, it's clearly not referring to Jerusalem. It's referring to the Lord. The Lord is their habitation. Why the change? Because the people who are in exile... A people who have been battered and bruised by Nebuchadnezzar, they need to understand, perhaps more than anything else, that their home is not a city. Their home is not even a temple, as glorious as that temple may be. What they need to understand is that God is not bound by Jerusalem. He's not bound even by a temple whose construction he commanded. God himself is their habitation of righteousness. God himself is their holy hill. He's telling the exiles that even though you are exiled in Babylon, don't forget, I am with you. Because fundamentally, if you really knew me, you would have understood that Jerusalem has never been your ultimate home. I've always been your home. Jerusalem and the temple have only been a picture of my relationship with you. But my relationship with my covenant people transcends location. I am your habitation of righteousness. I am your home. Holy Hill. And I cannot help but think that this must have been upon the mind of John, led by the Holy Spirit, when in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, describing the coming of Christ, he says, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, as if to say the habitation of righteousness has arrived. I tried to show you, even during the exile, that I'm your home. You still didn't get it. So now I'm coming to you, Emmanuel, God with us. So here's my point. The birth of Jesus Christ is the dawn of the new covenant. It's the dawn, it's not the completion of it. That's going to that's gonna wait the cross. In the resurrection but it's the dawn of it it's the beginning of it it's the beginning of the promise that god is going to be so near to us that we can say he is our god and we are his people yes we worship a god who is holy and omnipotent but we also worship a god who is present and who is personal so brothers and sisters I know I said I was just going to be teachy, but if I could be just a little bit preachy for a moment, do you know this personal God? Is he personal to you? Do you have a day-by-day relationship with the Lord? Is your relationship with God primarily intellectual, where you fill your head with good, outstanding, orthodox truths about God, is your relationship to God primarily action-oriented, where you fill your schedule with numerous things to do that are in and of themselves God-glorifying, and yet in the midst of all your knowing and in the midst of all your doing, You don't actually have a warm, personal relationship with God. And so the the personal nature of the New Covenant instructs us with the truth that that, that Christianity is not a course you sign up for, the way you might sign up for a Sunday school class by showing up. It's not a a movement that you sign up for, right, like a, a social action movement. But, but it, it's a relationship that you enjoy through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if what I'm saying sounds like Greek to you, then you have, you have work to do this afternoon or this week. You can, you, can, you can sit down with another Christian and say, I don't know what Aaron was talking about. I've been going to church all my life. I study harder than the next next guy. I'm doing all I can to do all the right things. But he's talking about a warm day-by-day relationship with God. And I don't know what he's talking about. And I just want to tell you, God's not tricky. He's not like dangling something out for you, just hoping you can jump high enough to get it. He calls you to rest. He calls you to stop fighting. He calls you to give in. He calls you to submit to know him as your God and to be identified as his son or as his daughter. Don't let don't let the sun go down today. If you want a relationship like that without finding a relationship like that. And so many of us here this morning would be glad to help you. The new covenant is personal. Fourth, the new covenant is gracious. The new covenant is gracious. Look at Jeremiah 31, 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now, if we were to read this in the most straightforward fashion, One conclusion that what we might be drawn to make is that God is saying there's no more need for teaching, which would change my life for sure. But if you just read it sort of at face value, religious instruction is no longer necessary because under the new covenant, everybody knows the Lord. No one will teach his neighbor. You don't have to, I don't have to teach you, you know, embrace God as personal because you know the Lord, you know that. So this religious instruction is not necessary. The problem with that is when you get to the New Testament, you see that it's filled with all sorts of exhortations to teach the gospel, to teach sound doctrine, to exhort one another. There's an awful lot of teaching, not even, not merely a teaching to be done by, by pastors to congregants, but just by brothers and sisters to one another. So whatever this means, it can't mean, it can't mean that there's simply no instruction, no teaching that's going on in the household of God. So this is a little bit confusing. And when the Bible is confusing, the first thing you need to do is not call the pastor, but you go to the Bible to see, does the Bible have anything to say about how the Bible is to be understood? And the Bible has a lot to say about how this verse is to be understood. There's a very similar passage in Isaiah 54, 13, very similar idea, another New Covenant passage, Isaiah 54, 13. And in that passage, the prophet Isaiah says, he says this, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, right? Under the new covenant, all your children shall be taught by the Lord. Do you see the parallel between that and Jeremiah? They're going to be taught by the Lord. There's going to be a a directness between the, the teaching ministry of the Lord and his new covenant people. A day is coming, Jeremiah and Isaiah seem to be saying, a day is coming when the Lord is going to reveal himself directly to his children. And that they're looking forward to a day when in that sense, we don't need to be taught by others. Because the Lord is our teacher. All right, that, so that, so far we're not really helped, we just have another prophet saying basically the same thing. Here's where we get a lot of help. Jesus himself cited Isaiah 54:13 in his own earthly ministry, he quoted it. One day he was teaching a bunch of disciples and he gave them a very difficult message. He said, I am the bread of life. Now, if you've been a Christian or if you've even been in the church for any number of years, you hear that, your mind glazes over like, I get it, he's the bread of life. But if you're a disciple and you've got a man standing before you who's known as a, 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 a special rabbi, but still just a rabbi, and he's basically saying, eat me. It's a troubling teaching. And so the disciples started grumbling. And Jesus instructed them. And John Chapter 6, beginning in verse 43, listen carefully. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 43, here's how Jesus answered those grumbling at the difficulty of his teaching that he himself is bread from heaven. He says, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets, and here's Isaiah 54, 13, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, Jesus says, comes to me. Now, with that verse in mind, I think we can conclude that Isaiah and Jeremiah, and Jesus for that matter, they're not denying the need for the value of human teachers. They are observing that under the new covenant, God draws people to himself. Under the new covenant, God leads people to repentance and faith so that the hardness of Jesus' teaching, I'm the bread from heaven, you need to eat me, the the difficulty of that teaching is overcome by the reality that there's no way anyone is going to believe that teaching unless they've been drawn by the Father. You're never going to reach that point where you actually believe, we actually feast on Jesus as the bread of life, unless you've been drawn by the Father, unless you've heard and learned, and now I'm quoting from, from, from Jesus here, unless you have heard and learned from the Father. So in that sense, the Father is the teacher. In the sense that the Father draws those to Himself to believe what Jesus taught to the sense to the extent that the father draws us to believe these very difficult words the father is the teacher not to the exclusion of one-to-one discipleship not to the exclusion of small groups not to the exclusion of preaching but with the reality that salvation doesn't finally come through any human intermediary or person, salvation always and only comes directly from the Lord who draws His people to Himself, and everyone who is drawn by the Father to the Father is a member of a child of the covenant. Now, consider, and I, if I've lost you... I'd like you back. Consider what life was like under the old covenant. Back then, many people came to the temple to worship, but they didn't actually know God. It's what they did because ethnically they were Jewish. Their hearts were, in fact, far from God. They offered up sacrifices to God, but they did so not necessarily because they were leaning into the promises of the Lord but because that's what you did if you were Jewish. Back then, and here's the key, back then, you could be part of the old covenant without knowing the Lord. This is why in the New Testament you read, not all Israel is Israel. You could be part of the people of Israel, but not really part of the people of God. You could officially Be a citizen of God's kingdom without genuinely, truly, salvifically. That means in a way that brings saving faith, knowing the Lord. But the new covenant, man, how different is that? In the new covenant, we have a more gracious outpouring of God's mercy. Everyone in the new covenant has been drawn by the Father. To submit to the Son. Everyone in the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 34. They shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. In other words, in the new covenant, everyone is going to know the Lord. Not like everyone on the planet. Everyone in the new covenant is going to truly know the Lord. From the, from the greatest to the least. From the presidents and the CEOs to the plumbers and the clerks. Right? From the least to the greatest, they will all know the Lord. Again, under the Old Covenant, you could be circumcised as a child, and you would become part of that Old Covenant via circumcision. You would be taught Torah, but you wouldn't necessarily know the Lord. The New Covenant is different, because under the New Covenant, God circumcises the heart, not the body. And he circumcises the heart of every single member of the New Covenant. To be part of the New Covenant is to know the Lord. Now, a brief, 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 brief aside, this is most fundamentally why I am a Baptist pastor and not a Methodist or a Lutheran or a Presbyterian pastor. Not just because I believe it's a better picture of the gospel by dunking big people. But in all seriousness, because I don't understand how faithfulness to Scripture could allow anyone to lead anyone to think he or she is part of the new covenant in any way without genuinely knowing the Lord. Now you say, but Aaron, haven't you ever baptized a non-Christian? Well, it turns out, yes, but I didn't do it on purpose. Right? I, I did it only after I and other elders came to the conclusion he genuinely knew the Lord. Because that's what the New Covenant demands. And that's what the New Covenant promises. That everyone who is truly in the New Covenant knows the Lord. Now, 2020 has been a year of do-it-yourself projects for obvious reasons. Christianity is not a do-it-yourself project. If you are in the new covenant, it is not because of your ingenuity. It's not because of your ethnicity. It's not because of your receptivity to your receptivity to the gospel. It's not because you were born into a great home. It is because God the Father drew you to himself via his irresistible grace, his sovereign, glorious grace. They shall all know me, God says to Jeremiah, from the least of them to the greatest. This is the promise of the new covenant. It is gracious. That's four things. Fifth, and lastly, the new covenant is costly. Now, everything I've said so far, the unbreakability of this new covenant, the power of the new covenant, the fact that it's personal, the graciousness of the new covenant, all of these new covenant blessings are rooted In in really one truth, which we find at the end of verse 34. And the truth is, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. A day is coming, Jeremiah promises, when our sins will be so fully and so finally and so forever forgiven that God can say, in fact, I will remember them no more. The old covenant made no such promise. It required sacrifices to be made day after day after day. And this is why the author of Hebrews comparing this old covenant to the new covenant says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better Promises, since the new covenant is enacted on better promises. And the best promise upon which the new covenant is exacted is the promise that God will remember your sins no more. The old covenant, with its daily requirement of bulls and goats and lambs, could not accomplish such a great salvation. We needed a better sacrifice. Right? The Old Covenant had its priests, the Old Covenant had its kings, the Old Covenant had its prophets, but the prophets were deceitful, the kings were treacherous, the priests were selfish, the sacrifices were forgotten. But in Christ, we have a king who rules perfectly, a prophet who only speaks truth, a priest who is so unselfish, he delivers up himself. And so he is himself the sacrifice. And you have to ask the question as you meditate upon this new covenant with all of its promises of iniquities being forgiven and new hearts being given, well, how do I get there? How do I get that new heart? How do I get this power where I can walk in all the statutes that God has established? How can I be the type of man or the type of woman who who desires the things of the Lord? How can I have this personal relationship with God that you keep talking about? Uh, How can I? How can I be part of a promise that I can genuinely know cannot be broken, not even by me? And the answer is rooted in the costliness of the new covenant. Remember the words of Jesus that he taught before his death, this is the new covenant in my blood. There it is. The new covenant is a covenant established by Christ when on that cross he gave up his life willingly for people whose hearts had sin inscribed in them with a pen of iron and a diamond point. People so wicked and so rebellious that they turn from a good and loving God to their own worthless idols. And if you think this is just about the people of Israel, you are in the wrong place. Because friends, this is the resume that we all share. There is no one in this room who has not been plagued by sin in such a way that we were a stench in the nostrils of God. There is no one in this room who has gone a single day without sinning against God, his maker. And like, I'm not trying to drop a fire and brimstone bomb on you. I'm saying this is by definition what it means to be a fallen human being. And why we all are in desperate need of being a member of this new covenant with all of these precious promises, and the only way you can get into that new covenant is through the blood of Christ. I mean, who would make that up? Jesus Christ, the final sacrifice, the better sacrifice, the better promise. And so when you go to Jesus, recognizing who he is and what he's done, You are so changed that every single part of you the Bible describes as a new creation. The Scottish pastor James Haldane put it this way. He said about people entering the kingdom of God by virtue of being part of this new covenant. He said the sins of his people are forever buried in their savior's grave. And when they are sought, that is the sins, they shall not be found. I will remember their sins no more." This is why Christ came. He came to die. This new covenant is costly. So, for the next few weeks, our neighbors are going to be distracting themselves from the perils of the pandemic and from an upcoming election by decorating their homes. And the Menachoffs are, in one sense, right there with them, right? The decorations are coming out pretty quickly, but not before Thanksgiving, because that would be wrong, (laughs) right? There are going to be shopping sprees, and there are going to be Christmas trees. And look, some of you maybe have a pink flamingo with a Santa hat, and I'm not going to judge you. They're going to watch holiday movies, they're going to drink eggnog, and they're going to quietly hope that 2020 sails into oblivion, never to be heard from again. And here's the scary part, and this is the scary part, and this is where I'm preaching to the church, right? I'm not not in Centennial Park right now doing street preaching. I'm speaking to the church. Here's the scary part. They're going to be singing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And my fear is that, that scores of people professing faith in Jesus Christ are going to be singing loudly, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, but like they're not going to understand God and sinners reconciled, and I just don't want that to be you. And I don't know how you can truly understand that reconciliation with the Holy God if you don't understand the unbreakability of the new covenant, if you don't understand its power, if you don't understand how personal it is, if you don't understand how gracious it is, and if you don't understand that you can enter it only through the blood of Christ. This, my dear friends, is why Christ came. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We recognize that this earth, this world is not our home because of the precious new covenant promises that we have come to embrace. We stand on the cusp of a promised land where not only will Not only is our desire to be holy going to be greater than our desire to sin, but in that new place, the desire to sin will be gone completely and forever. A place where we walk not merely by faith, but by sight, being able to see that you are our God and that we are your people. A place where we don't merely have to Grasp on to the promise that this new covenant bond is unbreakable, but where we will experience that truth to the nth degree, where we will rejoice in your grace and somehow never forget the cost that you paid that we might enjoy it. Help us to remember these new covenant promises, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.